Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. We have a special episode today, right? Very, very special. It's our first podcast of 2019. Yeah, 2019, and we have a special guest. We went to the uh, SEEK 2019 conference with Focus, and we had the one and only Adam Bartlett with us, which was an amazing conversation, and we were asked to be in the Focus podcast booth. It's the first time they were ever doing that. It was that. a true fishbowl, a glass box with a glass it ceiling, was. and everybody was outside looking at us making faces, trying Absolutely. to make us laugh. Absolutely. We made them laugh instead, so... Yeah, exactly. That's what I say. And then we also have some new Patreon supporters we'd like to thank. And I deeply, deeply apologize if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Um, I'm the worst. Uh, So first of all, Amanda Zygarlicky. Amanda Hugginkiss. Amanda Zygarlicky. Zygarlicky. Zygarlick. Bart Uphart. Madonna Muscarello. And Rex Rund. Wow, Madonna and Rex Rund. Rex Rund. I know him. Yes, I do know him. Um, so thank you very much for your support. And thank you, Madonna. The podcast that we do is just one of the many things we do at the Liturgical Institute. And we are thankful for the Patreon supporters who actually make this possible. There is real cost to make the podcast operate. But you know what? Just off the top of my head, the Liturgical Institute does a lot of good stuff. We have this lovely chapel we've inherited. Well, it's actually not so lovely. It works for it, us, but it architecturally could, it's not so lovely. I have be this more dream. Lovely that we could spend uh, not too much money and make it rather beautiful. We have needs and scholarships and all that. So if anybody knows people who love the liturgy and have excess income, send them our way. Yes, absolutely. We will put it to good use. So without further ado, episode 14 of season three of The Liturgy Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, Dennis. Yes, Jesse, we are at Seek. We are at Seek. In Indianapolis. What year is it? It is 2018. No, 19. And new for 2019, we have killed Chris, and we have replaced him with... Adam Bartlett. Adam Bartlett. I think that's a pretty even trade, if you ask me. (laughs) No, Chris is at home in the woods of Wisconsin doing what he does with his kids and sheep and stuff. Shearing uh, sheep, I don't know. Shearing kids, I don't know. But Adam Bartlett, for those who don't know, is probably... I'll say perhaps the most illustrious graduate of the Liturgical Institute's program, although he's pretty illustrious even before he came to us. Don't tell Jeremy Priest that. So, But nonetheless, <laughs> he has been doing the music, much of the music here at the SEAT conference, including Mass today, Sunday morning. Beautiful stuff. We've heard nothing. It was but, amazing. Uh, it really great was Great compliments. Yeah, people come to our booth and they're like, do you have a music program? We're like, no, but I, the guy who went to our school did the music for the Mass today. And they're so, like, whoa. Adam, the new Chris, say hello. Hey, guys. Great to be with you today. <laughs> Glad to be here. You know, we at the Liturgical Institute use your great book, Lumen Christi Missal and the Lumen Christi Gradual, and occasionally the Lumen Christi Hymnal for the Liturgy of the Hours. And I remember when I first started singing this, and I've told you this before, I looked at these square notes, and I looked at Gregorian chant, and I've been singing in choirs for 14, 18 years, and I was scared to death. I was like, what is that funny line and those squares and ups and downs? Didn't know how to do it. And Father Martis, who was the director, would put me up there as cantor, and I would beg him, please, don't make me cantor, because I can't do this. And then I started doing this every day and practicing, and it was scary, and I plunked out the notes on a piano, and now I can sight-read all of it, just from living the experience of chanted liturgy. Have you heard that from other people? 
Yeah, I think that tends to, to happen. I think the people who are most scared of uh, square notes are the people who are trained in modern notation, you know, people who are trained in music school. So they're a little intimidated at first. But you weren't always a square note guy yourself, were you? Not at all. You no, were kind of a long-haired, <laughs> are there hippie any FM type? guys out there? Well, let's say this. You know, uh, about 15 years ago, I would have fit in with this crowd here at Seek pretty, pretty well uh, as, uh, in, my, in my later youth. Yeah, so I grew up playing the guitar. Uh, I had the, the folk mass experience in my, my Midwestern parish, you know, in my youth. And then uh, attended Steubenville conferences and Life Teen uh, events in my later teen years, and then kind of came to discover this chant tradition and sacred music tradition of the church. So what made you a young fogey? Yeah, I want to hear some <laughs> stories. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, there are, there are many, but I would say one that was kind of striking is that um, I was uh, leading a teen mass as a you know, early 20-something at Our Lady of Mount Carmel Parish in Tempe, uh, close to where I went to college. And there was an Eastern Rite priest who was in residence, and he recruited me to lead a choir for the Ukrainian Byzantine Divine Liturgy. Uh, and the whole liturgy was sung from beginning to end, to end and he put up an iconostasis uh, and so forth. And, and you had your ah uh, moment, right? At that, is that what <laughs> well, it, it was? You know, it kind of set me off on a quest to discover the the chant tradition of my own right, uh, which you know I, I soon found and fell in love with, and kind of began to explore and have come to devote myself to. So, what what would you tell somebody who says Gregorian chant? Oh, it sounds boring. I don't know how to sing it. It's complicated. I mean, all the documents say this is the music proper to the Roman right. And yet almost nobody does it. What's, what's the big challenge and what's the reason for taking the time and the effort to do this? Well, first off, I, I actually sympathize with people who think that it sounds boring because what they, been there? Well, what they often hear is pretty boring. Um, you know, the, my chant teacher and, and his chant teacher um, have said that the that plain chant should be abolished, the, the, the name plain chant. It's actually not an accurate term. Um, because it's, it's actually anything but plain in its essence and what it ought to be. Um, we've kind of sung it in a very plain and monotonous way, um, but I, I don't think that it should actually be sung that way, and that's so definitely I'm, not the way we're singing it I'm here. looking at one of your antiphons now. God is in his holy whoa, whoa, whoa. That place. Seems, that sounds very plain, Dennis. <laughs> that is marching through the gulag, right, of the swampy mud of singing as opposed to, how would you sing that? Yeah, so it would be, God is in his holy place. God who unites those who dwell in his house. Wait, you know all the words, too? I didn't, well, you didn't I even mean, have the book in front of you, but <laughs> you are the composer of uh, it is, after all. Yeah, they tend to, to stick in your memory. But uh, yeah, but so, so chant should bring to life the word of God because in the song. I don't talk to you like this. Well, right. I talk to you like this, right? So, sung speech, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, so sung speech is kind of the foundation. Okay, and wh now one of the rediscoveries in the 20th century was this reinstitution of this insistence of chant in the liturgy. You, you find it from Pope Pius X up to Sing to the Lord, right? Which is the most recent document from the American bishops. They're all saying chant, chant, chant. Chant, 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 now, chant. <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> chanting chant. I think most people would think 
chant, oh, that's that pre-Vatican II fussy old-fashioned stuff. But you actually read Vatican II, it's saying chant is proper to the Roman rite, and it's associated with liturgical reform and active participation. How so? Right. So, I mean, first off, Sacra Sanctum Concilium Vatican II states, I think, the most um, uh, emphatically and authoritatively the, the role of Gregorian chant in, in the Roman rite. Um, it's amazing to think that Wait, I thought it said, get rid of all of that. <laughs> right, it didn't. And, and also, never yeah. use Latin. Yeah, not at all. Uh, you know, but it's also fascinating to know that the church's challenge with sacred music has been going on for some time. Uh, Pope Pius X in 1903 was, was asserting, trying to reassert uh, the primacy of chant in the face of the popular music of the time, right, which was 19th century Italian opera. Well, yeah, that can be too much going the other way where you can't even discern what people are saying, right? right? Yeah, and we go back to the Council of Trent, and they were, they were pushing chant because polyphony, which was in vogue at the time, was kind of getting out of control and obscuring the, you know, what, the text. So the, really the essence, the, the most, um, you know, uh, the best quality of chant is that it gives primacy to the Word of God. Right. And the Word of God we think of as written on a page in a book, but Christ is the Word of the Father, right? right. He's the God who imaged himself in his own mind and spoke himself. Like, he made himself knowable as a Word, who is Jesus Christ. And it's, you know, Chris Carson's, wherever he is in Wisconsin right now, pointed out that when you sing, you speak a word, you sing a word, but you also support it with breath. And so word as the sun and breath as the Holy Spirit come together in singing in a way that... And if that it's good, it's breathtaking. <laughs> and breath-giving, life-giving, right? Oh, yeah, breath-giving. Yeah. I did yeah. that to my brother once. He said, brush your teeth. <laughs> yeah, but I think the right. theological insight here is that the, the, the word is living and effective, right? The, the logos, the divine word that was with God in the beginning and, and you know, uh, is forever, is actually acting, is, is effective um, in the liturgy. And so the chant merely sets those, the, the words of the Mass that are a part of this prayer of Christ to the Father and the unity of the Holy Spirit. Can you give an example from one of your antiphons or something that you've composed? You say, I wrote th this way with these notes because right. the word said X. Well, well, what if we looked at the entrance antiphon for this morning, right? Okay. So today is the, the solemnity of the Epiphany. Right. Right. Uh, and... Um, we sang, Behold, the Lord, the Mighty One, will come. And what was it? You better open it up. Uh, and kingship is in his grasp and power and dominion. That's right. So that text uh, comes from the prophets, I think. Is it uh, Isaiah or something? Malachi. Malachi. Chronicles, it's combined. Right. So, um, so that text comes from Scripture, first and foremost. But it's also set in Latin Gregorian chant in a book called the, the Roman Gradual of the Grotto Alle Romanum, and there it's called Ecce Advenit. So at the very beginning in the Latin chant that we, comes from the 6th, 7th, 8th century and has kind of come down to us, it's been in the liturgical books ever since, it goes something like, Ecce Advenit. So at the beginning it's like, behold, and there's this kind of a musical ascent. It sounds like an announcement, like some trumpet. Yeah, like Ecce, that's what the Romans would say, like, you know, Ecce, what's going on? I'm going to use that all the time now. And I love that you're singing from the Gradually Romanum from memory. You have no book in front of you. You make my day that way. They tend to stick in your mind. So what I did with this simplified setting in English was not to take... 
the notes exactly and apply them, kind of squeeze them into the English text, but to try to adapt it according to the needs of the, you know, of, of the English language. So the word ecce, the accents on the first syllable, mm -hmm. and that tends to happen in Latin. We usually have these weak syllables that follow strong works that word accents, deus, dominus, you know, and so forth. But in English, we get words like behold, the Lord, or stump, <laughs> right? <laughs> God, you yeah. know, very Germanic. So we have to kind of adapt that. So what, we, what I did here was, Behold, behold, the Lord, the mighty one has come. So it puts right. all the accents on the right syllables in the right place. Yeah, exactly. No, I want to hear why it's, Mighty one has come. It starts up here and winds up down so, here. So, yeah, so just the melody is trying to bring out the meaning in the character of the text as it would be spoken well. So usually at the beginning... Uh, of a line when we speak, we, uh, we, we start low, and then we start to gradually ascend. Behold, the Lord, the Mighty One. There's a, almost a kind of climax that's happening. Behold, what? The Lord. Who? The Mighty One. What? Has come. Right? I so loved that, every part of what you just did right there. <laughs> so there's, there's kind of drama that's happening, and the melody is climbing with that accentuation. It's like when pattern. the Domino's guy finally gets to your door on Super Bowl Sunday, right? Behold, the pizza has come. Right? <laughs> right. But we're more uh, important now. I didn't know that Domino's delivery guy knew the graduale Romano, but all right. <laughs> but, but it's just the way life works, right? But there's something else to this. So we're actually using uh, the Gregorian modes. This is in mode two. Uh, in what that, is a mode? So a mode uh, are medieval orderings of the notes that we have in the major scale today. But so music a la mode. <laughs> yes, Jesse. I yes, knew what it Jesse. was. I just so, wanted to make that, that joke. I'm sorry. Yes. I you, hope you, you run liturgymemes.com, yes. right? I have yeah. to do this every week. My, shine, my crown in heaven is shiny. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse, for that. I am his cross to bear. So, <laughs> so the Gregorian modes uh, precede our major and minor tonal system that we, we find in, in you know, most of our music today. Uh, but instead of emphasizing everything leading back to do... And you know, dee 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 da, right? Um, it actually is going to emphasize re in me, fa, and sol, but it's essentially yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. So different notes within that scale, um, but it's it's a little bit foreign at times to our ear, but it's actually in a more ancient musical form than our our modern. Right, because the ancient Greeks had like mixolydian, and they have these different arrangements of whole and half note relationships, right? In the well, scales. they did. We, we actually know nothing nothing about what that sounded like, uh. but uh, but the medievals kind of wanted to to reclaim in some way the Greek tradition. Because I've heard the modes them. have different moods. Is that right, or is that yeah. just an overlay that people yeah, came up so, with later? No, that's well. Kind of both and, but okay. you know, but but there's an ethos in the mode, right? So this one's very serious. It's not, you know, happy and bright. It's very serious. Behold, the Lord, the mighty one will come. This is something that has gravity, you know, to it. Right. I remember you taught me that mode seven was the uh, was it the Star Wars mode or the right. Indiana Jones mode. Yeah, it's triumphant. It's victorious. It's, yeah, it's energetic. An it's angelic. I've noticed you use mode seven a lot for those kinds of antiphons where the, the Lord has come or something like that. Right. And actually, and actually, I didn't choose that. I just followed what's given in the, the Latin um, liturgical ah, book. Okay. Right. So, ecce adveni, mode two. Uh, what I did is I took the same English text, uh, simplified it, maintained the mode, and tried to, in some way, communicate the ethos of what ecce adveni is doing. Can you doing. go into like, the give and take between using 
um, the the notes and the elevations of the notes from the Latin and you know when you need to translate that into English when do you keep the notes the same and when do you have to change them because of the accent yeah it's a good question so one of the beautiful things about Gregorian chant is that it you know it, it gives uh, emphasis it, it tries to make the text what it actually is it doesn't distort it it doesn't um, try to, to um, you know, do something unnatural with it. But a part of the Latin language in, in English, by extension, and the other Romance languages as well, not that English is a Romance language, is that there's, there's dynamic emphasis on the word accent. So uh, in a Gregorian chant melody, it, there will be emphasis on the structural syllables, and they're aligned with the modally structured note. Now that's kind of you know musical it sounds theoretical, real nerdy to me, but, but, but I like it. But but here's the thing: is that Gregorian chant in, and uh, well, I could even tell quickly the story of Gregorian chant. It came from Rome, but it was imported by, by Charlemagne in the Carolingian uh, Renaissance, and he handed off to his Frankish cantors who applied this amazing uh, system of musical ornamentation on top of the Roman chants. So you can hear sort of the Roman structure and then the Frankish overlay in that Frankish Romano oh, yeah. confluence becomes now what we call Gregorian chant. And that's the classic thing, the Roman simplicity, right? They, they built roads and they had armies and they had soldiers and they got things done. And the, the French or the Franks were always known for their flowery <laughs> right. ornaments. Right. I remember Such reading an essay about um, uh, fairy tales. And I think it was by Tolkien, and he said the French had fairy tales like Cinderella, where you had a carriage and a diamond tiara and a big dress. The English had fairy tales like Lord of the Rings, where you lived in the Shire in a grass-thatched hut, and they were back to the earth. But the French was always glittery Cinderella kind of stuff. So wait, I have, to, I have the French to blame for glitter because... I hate that stuff. <laughs> His wife is very anti-glitter, by the way. <laughs> anyway, so the Roman simplicity met with the Frankish yes. uh, so ornamentation. I, I, I don't know what the Roman source is for Ecce Adveni, but it's probably something like Ecce Advenit. You know, very simple. But then the, the Frankish cantors are like, no, 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 this is you know, too simple. Ecce Advenit. So that ornamentation is laying on top of a very simple structure, which our ear can latch onto and we can our minds can sort of grasp. So the very, the more melismatic uh, idiom is just an ornamented, very simple syllabic chant. I think of, um, when, so I was on a pro, uh, Eucharist procession and we were singing Christus Vinci, right? Christus Vinci, Christus Regna. It was like we were marching to go, you know, <laughs> conquer the Gauls or something. That seemed to be very Roman, very imperial, very army-like. So is that, the, is that the character of Roman chant? You know, I, I'm actually not an expert on this topic, but I, but I do know that Gregorian chant is not, you know, a, a big string of equal notes. There, there's structure underneath a very florid and, and fluid system of ornamentation. And if we sing it that way, it's very beautiful. If we sing every note the same and not as ornament, it can get kind of dreary and heavy. Um, and it's not doing what chant is supposed to do sacramentally. But the ornaments don't go just anywhere. They usually go on the important words, right? Is that right? Or the accented words? Yeah, well, they kind of follow the, the structure. I, I actually think a great analogy is jazz. My chant teacher said, Gregorian chant's nothing but a medieval jazz, hmm. right? So you, you, the way that you hear Charlie Parker or Miles Davis or who, you know, Ella Fitzgerald you know, 
sing or play a jazz tune, they might ornament it differently, but you can discern what's underneath it. I, one of the examples I use in class is uh, the Dominican Regina Celli. And it's Regina Celli Letare. I probably didn't sing it properly, but there's like, why so many notes, right? That's from the old movie Amadeus, so the emperor says too many right, notes, too and many Mozart notes. gets all mad. Why so many notes on Letare, which means rejoice? And uh, they're like, because uh, Mary's really happy. I was like, exactly, right? <laughs> There's a lot of rejoicing. because She's going to bear the Christ child to the world. And later on, it, it goes, da, 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 same exact note pattern twice. And uh, like, why do they do it twice? Because uh, it's really important. It's like, yes. Yeah, it's exactly. the solemn tone, right? And, um, and so we, you have to start, you have to think to do chant properly, don't you? You have to say, what do these words mean? What are we trying to say? Yeah, what are we communicating? That's what I'm supposed time? to be doing when singing? Well, to mm -hmm. compose it, yeah. Oh, okay. Right. But hopefully it gets in you, right? You don't have to say, oh, well, there's this and that, and there's all the technical term. You're like, I just know that these important words sound important. Yeah. It, you know, I think it's kind of a testament to the, uh, the effectiveness of the chant uh, style that we can have 17,000 people this morning, right, chanting, behold the Lord, the mighty one has come. They, they'd never heard that before, right? It's simple enough, it's in their own language, uh, but they grasped onto it, and I, I think they were all singing it, weren't they? Well, lots of people were, I know for sure. And, um, you know, I, I sometimes think you should learn liturgical music the way you learn happy birthday, right? You're at the table, and your mom and dad and older brothers and sisters are singing happy birthday to you. You never go to choir practice to learn happy birthday, but if you sing the Our Father in chant, which many people do in English, they never took a chorus class to do that. They just picked it up by living that tradition. And so it, you have to do it a lot, and then it's become second nature. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I have uh, young children, and, and, you know, they've just grown up singing the, the chants. And, and in, you know, I didn't have that experience in my youth, but I think if, if we give young people just the experience and the encounter with this music, it'll become a part of them for sure. Yeah, give chance a chance. That's what I say. <laughs> okay. And I think w what you're describing about the ornamentation is almost like a microcosm of the liturgy in and of itself, because that's, that's something that does have a structure that we do have to follow, but due to you know the liturgical calendar or whatever feast day it is, um, there are different ornamentations that sure. that push us in one way or the other, and it gives us, with the chants, the antiphons, and what's happening, it gives us a theme for yeah. that particular liturgy, right. if done right. I came up with a phrase that Jesse likes, and if you like it, please feel free to use it. I said the entrance antiphon is like liturgical coffee. Oh, yeah. Because it's about the feast of the day, the saint of the day, the gospel, whatever it is, already your brain starts to wake up. You see, God is in his holy place, God, who unites those who dwell in his house. Oh, wow. God's up there, and I'm in his house, but he's going to unite all these disparate people who have come together to worship him. And I say, well, how? that's just pretty much equivalent to go make a difference, isn't it? Right? Uh, go make a difference versus God unites those who dwell in his house. Right, and, and that's actually the, uh, the introit for Holy Family, I think, right? Well, it says 17th Sunday, but it might be Holy Family. Okay, Family we use too. it there as well. Yep. But, I mean... That's people will say right off the bat. Oh, I don't like chant; it's boring. Or I, I don't like the mass; it's boring. It's like no, it allows you to see variance in what's actually happening. The mass is not the same every time. There's a theme. There's an idea for you to hold on to, and and the plan is for you to attach to that theme or that idea and let that infuse your life and what you're doing. And then tomorrow is going to be totally different. That's right. 
I mean, I think to, to borrow a phrase from uh, Columba Marmion, a liturgical movement figure, we want to find Christ in his mysteries, you know, and, and he's always present. This is all about encountering Christ. And that being said, I want to see if we can do our little part to bridge this big divide between the glory and praise singers and the chant singers, right? Because I would, I'm, I'm more temperamentally associated with chant in my mind, in my, my sense. But I was at the Eucharistic Adoration last night, and they were walking around with the monstrance, and people were crying on my left and crying on my right, and the simple... Yeah, I'm real sorry about that, Dennis. <laughs> it's not because I was there. Simple phrase, it was, you are no longer a slave, you're a child of God. And after a while, I was like, whoa, that's true. And I felt that welling up, and the tears welling up in my own eyes. It's a real powerful religious experience that you don't want to say is invalid, even though chant has its own particularity. So how do you reconcile that kind of music with this kind of chant? Well, I need to clarify first. I don't think they were singing anything out of glory and praise. Uh, last no, night. no. But, you know, what they call the glory and praise style. Or, or the praise and worship. Praise and, so and worship. Yeah. yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Got uh, praise in there anyway. Glory and praise and worship. Yeah, I, I grew up <laughs> strumming the glory, glory and praise. and We're not going to hear that at this, this place, I think. And the singers were excellent, right? The, the really high-quality singing last night. Without a doubt. And this is actually my, my fourth uh, Focus conference, right? So um, I've been working with uh, the uh, Focus Collective during these past years, and we've been talking about this very thing. You know, what is the role of music in all the areas of the church's life? Not just the liturgy, but certainly the liturgy, um, but also what's its role in the life of devotion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's extra-liturgical. And what's its role in evangelization? It has a really powerful, you know, role in evangelization. And, and what's its role in culture at large? And how do these things work together? Mm -hmm. um, and we've had this conversation and really have discovered, you know, with the help certainly of the church's teaching and, and uh, that they're not in conflict with each other. They absolutely need to, to work together. So um, it all begins with the liturgy, right? This, this is the source and the summit of the church's life the font from which all things flow, but out of our, our encounter with Christ in this transcendent, um, you know, otherworldly uh, experience and participation in the heavenly liturgy, we're filled with grace so that we can go out, and that's ordered actually outward toward the culture. The water that flows from the, the mountaintop has to, you know, and out of the right side of the temple has to go to every river and tributary down below, right? This is from Ezekiel. Um, but then the image that the church uses of the, the summit is that then we can't just stay there. We have to climb back up. So we're always in motion. The church is always in pilgrimage, right? <clears throat> and then so we go uh, into the task of evangelization and share that light of Christ with others that, that we received first. And then, uh, you know, we we take it into our families and into the church ad intra and we prepare ourselves in the life of devotion to return once again after pouring ourselves out through asceticism, you know, to the liturgy again. So uh, music has a role in all these different areas and they're distinct. They're different. They're not in conflict with each other. They just serve different purposes. So you might not sing credo in unum deum around the campfire at Camp Lotiwa, right? I, I don't think I would do that. But no. there is a time you and wouldn't place. You would You've never been. For, I mean, maybe we would, kind of but music. they wouldn't. And, you know, I had this, and I don't think I invented this, but I had this epiphany when I was studying liturgical art and distinguishing any old sacred art, statue or painting of whoever, good art, from liturgical art, which you see in some of the great churches, especially the early Roman basilicas, they have these mosaics of Christ in glory. You see the new earth, you see the new heavens, you see the stars, you see the angels and the saints. And it's an image of the liturgy I call the visual sanctus, right? So you sing the sanctus, holy, 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 and then you see the people who are doing that. Strictly, that's the liturgy for our eyes. 
And you don't sing, you don't make that kind of art, you know, over your bedside table picture that you have there, right? The devotional art is one-on-one. It's more arising from yourself. It's more emotional. And then there's this kind of relentless objectivity and universality about liturgical art. And so there's category liturgical and category devotional, and they're both great, and they're both necessary, but they're not the same thing. And, and I think there's kind of a danger there, too. And, and Adam, you and I have talked about this before, and I think we both had some similar experiences, but, you know, when I was in college and, you know, I was really getting into praise and worship music, I, I, I accrued a, a dependence upon the emotional aspects of praise and worship music, and that dependence kind of brought me into, like, a depression or a valley whenever I went to any other type of mass that didn't have that. And I, I relied on that. I relied on that emotional... Um, pleasure that I would get from those experiences, not unlike Dennis was, was speaking about earlier. And, and I think what that does is it removes um, the experience of you bringing yourself to the liturgy. And what I was trying to do is bring all of the liturgies to me, to what I wanted. And it can be dangerous in that way. Yeah, I mean, if we restrict it just to me, right? I mean, that's right. where we get dangerous because we are, we have emotions. God created us with emotions. They're an important part of, of our you know constitution. So we can't deny that, right? So we're told to go to our room and close the door and pray in secret, right? And, and that would be devotional prayer. Right, or we, or we can great. do it together, and that's great. But in the liturgy, something different happens, right? We actually conform ourselves to a, something that's outside of us, this prayer that the church gives us, right? It's, it's uh, I like to use this catechesis from Pope Benedict XVI on this a phrase from the rule of St. Benedict that that the mind should be attuned to the voice. And what does that mean, mens concordat voci? It means that, Pope Benedict says, the word comes first in the liturgy. Usually it doesn't happen that way because we, ha- we usually speak, we usually think, and then we speak. And what's inside of us, we express into words. And that's kind of what's happening in the devotional life. We, you know, we have a relationship with God, and we, we convey our inner sentiment and our inner life to him, and that's important. We have to do that. But in the liturgy, the opposite happens, he says. The word comes first. And we need to conform ourselves to that word, unite ourselves and unite our emotions to what that word is conveying. And that way we feel with the church, we think with the church, we pray with the church. And in that way, we're made in the image of God, right? We're made children of God. I see this happen with new seminarians at Mundelein all the time. They first start doing the Liturgy of the Hours and they start making Liturgy of the Hours jokes. So it's like real insider seminarian stuff. Like, where can I acquire the heart of a child? And they imagine like going and seeing this little beating heart in their hands. Or they'll say, I'm going to compass you about like bees. You know, that's this language they never Wait, spoke they before. Make the- yeah, the seminarian nerd insider jokes. But what, what, I got to get with those guys. <laughs> but what it shows you is that that language, which was foreign to them, has now become part of them. And it takes a little discipline, right? You don't become a great basketball player by sitting around wishing you were. You have to practice. You have to lose your bad habits. And you have to discipline yourself. And I think that's what uh, D- David Fagerbrook calls liturgical asceticism. It's when you lose your own desires to the desires of Christ. And so mass, in a way, should be a little difficult at first, maybe even a little bit boring, like it is to play scales on the piano or the guitar or whatever. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think it takes work. You know, it, it, it takes an effort and it takes time. It takes regularity, right, um, for us to be able to enter into it. And then when we continue to pour ourselves out and conform ourselves to the mystery that we celebrate, right, it changes us. 
in that way. We're not trying to make it into what we want it to be because we're fallen, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's supposed to make us into the image of Christ. And not, not only that, it makes us into him and brings us through him to the Father in heaven. And this is the, the action of our redemption, well, made, made manifest and actualized right in the liturgy. Don't let this give you a big head, but sometimes I'm in the shower and I find myself singing, he who ponders the law of the Lord day and night will yield fruit in due season. It's like these beautiful I'm all about the Common of Martyrs. That's uh, my favorite one. Oh, yeah. What, which uh, one is that? Do you remember? Common of Martyrs. Uh, uh, whoever wishes yeah. to come after me. Come maybe. after me. Must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Right? Yeah, and those little phrases, you know, they stick with you throughout the day, don't they? And they yeah, come back and the melodies do. And I and and that's that's the devotional part for me is that I, I actually enjoy when it's a feast day for our martyr because I know I get to hear that and that's one of my favorite ones and like that's how I can have that emotional experience without you know bringing the liturgy to me. It allows me to then more access what's actually happening there. Right. And I have to say, personally, I've always known your work was important. Then when I became academic director and liturgy director and music director at the Liturgical Institute, and I was like, what are we going to sing today? And people are asking me. And here was the, these books you produced right there, ready to go. As you always say, it's not just add water, but it's, it's the recipe card with all the ingredients that are on the table. And if you can pull it together, and sometimes I'm just so grateful for what you've done and the contribution you've made for our life at the Liturgical Institute. And I just hope this expands out more and more as time goes on. Well, thanks, Dennis. It's very, very kind. And, yeah, oh, sorry, I was just saying, and, and like what you said, I mean, the common reaction when, when you want to try to introduce chant or anything like this, um, a common reaction, at least from, from older Catholics I hear, is like, well, nobody wants to do that. Nobody can do it. And you said earlier, I mean, we had 17,000, 18,000 people that were able to say, wait a minute, this is different. Let's try it. And then now by the end of the weekend, everybody's doing it really mm -hmm. well. Right, right, right. And right. they sing the responsorial psalm every Sunday, and they're different every Sunday, and it's basically the same concept, and we managed to pull it off, right? Yeah, and I think what you said before about just opening up the book or, you know, kind of opening it and it's there is a real relief for, for people who are responsible for music and the liturgy is that, you know, for years I, I was taught and I led to believe that the, that the mass was this blank slate for us to kind of create and let's pick out a song here. And, you know, uh, it was all about expressing what we wanted to do on the mass, but it's so freeing as a liturgical musician or as a pastor to say, wait a second, it's actually given to us. All we have to do is open it up and do it. Yeah. And what is more, it's leading, it's better than anything that we could choose. My favorite pages, other than the beautiful music, is 466, 467, the proper <laughs> Everybody schema. Everybody pull right? out your <laughs> so book Karen ritual. Hopkins and I at the Institute, we have to make the musical schedule for the month. So I go there and I go back and forth with the numbers. And I'm like, oh, 15th Sunday in Ordinary Time. There it is, right? And the yeah. church has given this to us so that over the course of the year, we can think, sing, say, and see all the different mysteries of the mystical body of Christ. And if you don't approach it that way, you're just kind of missing out. You know, mm -hmm. sing the same, sing the same song every week, right? That's, mm -hmm. This is kind of the joke that people say. But we're getting all the mysteries of the facets of the gem of the mystical body. And it's just it's such a great uh, thing that the, that the great minds of the church and the Holy Spirit have inspired and that you've allowed us to get access to. What, Adam, what are you working on now? What's, what's, what's next? I mean, we have these beautiful old books here that people are, can, can go and find. Where can they get them, by the way? Yes, yeah, so you can go to illuminarepublications.com. It's a Latin word, I-L-L-U-M-I-N-A-R-E, Illuminare. Or just Google Lumen Christi Missal or Simple Gradual, and you'll find it. 
So I founded uh, Illuminare seven years ago. We published eight books. Uh, you know, and, and the work continues. It's not done. We're working sure. on a full gradual and so forth. Uh, we have new translation of the Liturgy of the Hours coming soon. All that has to be set to chant. You so know. they say. <laughs> One of these days. How did you come up with the name Lumen Christi and Illuminar? I mean, yeah. obviously, it's, there's light. light yeah, Christ, so, yeah. and that kind of takes me, you know, in the direction of Jesse's question is that um, really the idea, Lumen Christi, the light of Christ is given to us in the liturgy, and we're able to perceive that light, and that light is placed within us, but it's not so that we can put it under a bushel basket, right? We've got to let it shine. <laughs> let it shine, let it <laughs> you know? shine. So you when this little light of mine? <laughs> so, but, but the nature of the liturgy is that when we, are, when we receive the light of Christ, it ha- we have to let it shine for others, right? So um, in recent years, I've been really trying to get into that question of how are, is the authentic uh, celebration and renewal of the liturgy connected to the new evangelization? And I think mm-hmm. that's really what we're you know, kind of saw this morning as well, that, that the beauty of the liturgy is not just for itself. It's so that we can, we can be radiant with the light of Christ and then go out as missionary disciples and, uh, and evangelize effectively, incredibly, right? So, so really what I'm working on right now is, is to expand into formation and training and to help people uh, renew the liturgy and, and, and sing the liturgy well also so that they can become... Uh, you know, better missionary disciples. Mm-hmm. And if you can get seventeen to 18,000 people to do it in some warehouse with uh, steel and cement. <laughs> Convention center, right? I mean, right. I even told somebody today, I said, not, not only was the music beautiful, but that two or three minutes of sacred silence that mm-hmm. we had right afterwards, that just was the cherry on top for me because it, it allowed you to just, you know, take in everything and reflect. And silence... Even though music is like your whole career, silence is a huge part of that too. So, you know that when you read a lot of books and you teach for a long time, you, you remember certain sentences out of books. And and we'll see if Jesse can remember because I say this all the time. Oh no! All right. Eve Congar wrote a book called The Mystery of the Temple in 1964. It was translated to English, and he said the presence of God is holy and confers holiness. Holiness. Okay, good, Jesse. I got it. The presence of God is holy and confers holiness. So sometimes I think we think holiness comes like vapor under the door, right? But it's, no, you encounter God in the Eucharist primarily, right? In the sacraments, the life of the church. But if you're kind to someone and they feel Christ's presence, holiness is conferred upon them. They're made more loving, more delightful. And we can see, I think, music that way too, right? The words of God would convey to you what God wants you to know, right? And so something of God's holiness is present to you and therefore you're transformed by it. And so the music can make the text more penetrating, and this is why chant's always been held up as this great way to encounter God, not just music stuff, but encounter a transformative holiness. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I think I agree, absolutely. And, you, know, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, the phrase, going back to Prosper of Aquitaine, this disciple of St. Augustine. Which we all do, yeah. Okay. You know, uh, is lex orandi, lex credendi, right? The way, so the, way, the way that we pray forms how we believe, but not only that, it forms how we live, lex vivendi. And I, I'd even like to add, if I may, the lex mitendi, the law of mission, flows ah. also from the law of prayer into the law of belief into How the law of life into the law of, of mission. It's lex all cantandi. Is that a word? Lex, the law of singing? <laughs> I came up not? with lex edificandi, right? The, the, the yeah. le, law of building churches is the, it grows out I of the I prefer lex worship. patria, but you know, the law of the land, the law of your country. No? <laughs> okay, there you go. All right. Come on, I was trying to join the I jokes. I know, Jesse's always trying. <laughs> I don't know, this seems like a good place to wrap up, Yeah, huh? absolutely. Adam, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for 
everything that you've done. Uh, I will put a link in the description of the show for uh, all of these wonderful music resources. And uh, wouldn't, no question this week, because Chris isn't here. Okay, he, Chris answers all the questions because he knows all the answers. Uh-huh. So I just pretend, so... That's it. That's it. Okay, thanks so much. Great Adam, to be with you guys. Great to Thank be here you. at Seek with everybody, too. God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.